Hey, save for the podcast, you guys. We should save for the podcast. Fight, fight, fight! <laughs> yeah. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode three of the JavaScript Jabber podcast. Uh, this week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Hello. We also have Jameson Dance. Howdy doody. We have Yehuda Katz. Glad to be here as always. And I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. And uh, this week we're going to be talking about build tools with, uh, with JavaScript. And, and there's a lot to talk about. Does somebody want to kind of start us off and talk about some of the build tools that are out there and what types there are, and then we can kind of dig into why we use them. And, and Okay, so I have a wish list, and my goal for this podcast is to figure out if this exists or not, uh, to have someone make it or maybe me make it. So first on my list is like uh, maybe a giant donut in my hand right now. Um, but second after that is like I want to be mm-hmm, able to... Donuts. <laughs> so I want to be able to write my code in the same way on Node and in the browser and be able to require it with the same syntax and, and use the code in the same way. Yeah, I would also really like to have like a development mode where I don't have to do any kind of compilation or anything. I can just reload my page after I make changes to my code, but then be able to actually compile it all into one giant file to, to cut down on the number of HTTP requests. And it'd be sweet if there was some kind of like pipeline that you could plug things into, right? Because we're going to talk about all these like minifiers and compilers and things. Um, but right now it seems like there's a bunch of disparate tools that all kind of do one part of that, but they don't all really work together really well. So like, I mean, I know things that solve each of these problems individually, but is there something that does all of this together? So, uh, first of all, I wrote something like that. Um, but it's written in Ruby, which probably means most people in JavaScript will not want to use it. But, um, I want to say with regard to the development and production mode thing, um, I'm definitely of the religion that instead of trying to make a thing that will use it, use like HTTP through the local file system in development and then you compile in production to one file. I am definitely of the religion that you should just make your development mode be smart and fast at doing the compilation for you um, so that you're basically dealing with the same exact environment in production and development. Um, and a lot of people stop me right there and say, well, that means that you're going to have, your browser's going to not tell you useful things in the backtrace. Um, it turns out that there's a feature in browsers for a very, really, really long time um, called source URL, which is now in every browser probably but IE, which basically uh, lets you say, when you eval this code, uh, it is actually of this file. And basically the end result of that is that you get your Chrome tells you uh, it's in the script section as its own script. Uh, your backtraces tell you useful things. The debugger shows it as a Whoa, file. So, the, so it doesn't go to like line 8,000 of no. some giant monolithic script? So that's sweet. I didn't know that. I've never heard of that before. So, How would you use that in, say, Chrome, for example? So basically, you, uh, Chrome requ- every browser re- only does this if you eval code. So basically, you, you, what you end up doing is you end up building up a manifest of all the individual files that are on your file system, put them into one giant file, which says something like, uh, whatever you're, so we use a thing at Living Social called Battlemaster, which is like a purpose-built thing for this. Um, so you say battle, we generate battlemaster.register, module name, comma, and then string. And then when you go to require that thing, we basically just eval it and throw in the source URL at the end. And then basically because all the files are, e- everything is evaled, and this is the development mode thing, right? In development mode, everything's evaled. 
you get you still get the same situation, which is that compiler is actually running, um, everything's concatenated like it would be in production, but you're telling Chrome like, hey, this piece of code over here is actually this file, and then Chrome does all, basically the whole Chrome development tools do the right thing, and Firefox does as well, etc. Sweet. Yeah. All right, that's that's one thing off the list. Well, so, but you still have to, after you make your changes to the code, you still have to go and do like Battleship compile something, right? Oh, you so, can't just so, change it and then see it immediately, right? So again, I wrote a thing that we use a lot. Um, a bunch of projects are using it. Or does it have like a watcher? Uh, so it doesn't, so base, So I have like a general, a bigger argument about this, which is um, the, the problem that we're actually trying to solve here is a build, uh, a, like a make file type problem, right? It's a, there are a lot of inputs and they go through various transformations and eventually get to an output. It's basically the same as make or rake or whatever. Um, so I have a thing that doesn't have a file system watcher yet, but it basically just generates a bunch of rake tasks, file rake tasks internally. So um, you basically list out all the filters that you want. So you said you want the filters. You basically say like, I want to have a filter that minifies. I want to have a filter that wraps all this in a closure. I want to have a filter that converts CoffeeScript into JavaScript, etc. You basically list out all your filters and then it makes- And this is rake. Rake pipeline. This is rake pipeline, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so it basically then just makes okay. rake, rake tasks uh, for every single one of those things. And rake already knows how to not redo things that in which the underlying files have not changed, right? So basically, yeah. I am leaning on rake to do the heavy lifting around build tools just because I, I started thinking about this a while ago. And my general opinion is that we should model the problem that we have here as though it was a regular build problem, not as some kind of new problem. And if you do that, you get a lot of things for free from existing tools. So I'm still a little confused, though. Like, how could I possibly take minified, Google closureified or uglified JavaScript that's all on one line with variable names changed to A, B, A, C, A, D, and be able to... Because that's what I want in production, right? I want the small, compact file. But yeah. then how in the world would passing in a an at source URL and because uh, it looks like the, the syntax is you put a comment with at source URL and then give it the file name and it will then reference that like I I just I'm not understanding how that's even possible for it to know that where it threw exception AB that that means that it so there's a couple that it was of, there's a couple of things I'll say like what we actually do and then I'll say like where the web is going um, so we're, okay. what we actually do is we just have, there's filters that are not run in development mode, right? So basically we have a, a, a server that runs in the background in development mode that's doing the compilation for you. It's essentially re-executing the rate tasks all the time. And uh, Okay, so right? you, you just omit the, the minify correct. filter. Correct, correct. Um, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah. okay. And where the web is going on this is there's a, a feature called source map, which is like the next generation of source URL, which is basically a spec for saying, here's how you could take minified code and convert it back out into the original. And there's already a plugin for Firefox that the Google Closure team has written that basically takes closureified code and maps it back. Um, but the, like, the web ecosystem is working on this feature. So eventually CoffeeScript or minified code or whatever will be able to map that. Can I, can I back the bus up for a minute? Um... So it seems like we're, we're talking about this stuff and we're kind of making the assumption that uh, people know why we want these kinds of things. Um, so for example, um, you know, you want the minified code because it makes your, makes your JavaScript file smaller. Um, the same thing with compiling uh, all of your JavaScript into one file is that it 
we, we talked about, I, was it last time or the time before we talked about how most browsers only make like six uh, web requests at a time. And so instead of chewing up six of those with six different JavaScript files, you get one. Um, you know, just different things like that. You know, you can gzip it and then Apache or Nginx or whatever can can actually send an even smaller file that your your browser can handle. And so what we're talking about here is we're talking about um, load speed and, uh, you know, packaging things up so that you, you get it all at once without having to download this giant file. The, the problem we're trying to solve is people have a misconception somewhat that that a large file means a slow load, and and that's true. Um, but uh, I mean, th that's the most important factor is the misconception. There's also latency to consider. So if you're including 30 different JavaScript files, um, and your ping latency is you know 400 milliseconds or whatever, uh, then you're adding that on for every single file that it's going to have to load, and so the latency. Um, for large sites can become greater than the load time of the actual bytes going across the wire. So that's why we want to package all the CSS together in one file, all the HTML together in one file, all the JavaScript together in one file, and distribute a full application across the wire rather than uh, every single component of the application. And browsers are kind of stuck here because um, job, script tags are actually able to contain document.write declarations, which are basically like, tell the parser instead of seeing the script tag, see something else. So browsers for the longest time just threw up their hands and said, because this is possible, we're just gonna totally block and wait for the script tag to get back. Uh, obviously older browsers still do that. Newer browsers try to prospectively figure out like, oh, we'll just, most of the time it's not a document that writes, so we'll just move ahead, start parsing, and then we'll just throw it away if we have to. But there is definitely this problem that because document that writes semantics are weird, script tags aren't as efficient as you might even expect them to be in an optimal situation. And as a general rule, people should not, in this day and age, be using document.write. Yes, but every, many ads networks do, and the browsers are unwilling to throw it under the bus, right? So basically there's a, the script semantics of the web are somewhat based on this arcane, somewhat still widely used feature. Right. All right. So I, I think we've kind of gotten the point that, you know, there are all these different things that, that go into the consideration of why we do this. So um, sh should we talk a little bit then? I, just to be clear, minification, minification is definitely like the, the honeypot that gets people into wanting to compile things in the first place. But there's all these, there's also like compiling CoffeeScript or compiling uh, SCSS or less or uh, a bunch of other things that people like I in all my projects I wrap a closure around all my JavaScript files just so that I could do var in all of them right so that there are other things once you realize that you build tools are a good idea there's other things that you want to do in addition to minification everyone wants minification some people want CoffeeScript SCSS etc. Alright cool so um, let, let's talk about some of these processes then Let's see, what, what do we have on our list? So I think one that, that uh, I deal with on a daily basis is the Rails asset pipeline or Sprockets, which is a Ruby deal that compiles all your JavaScript and stuff. There are some things I like about it, um, some things I don't. One of the main things is that it, it loads differently in development than production, but that's more of a Rails issue really than a JavaScript issue. But other than that, you know, I like the idea of having it compile everything into one file and then just pulling it in. Um, I know Yehuda has some issues with the way that it works, and I'm not really sure what those are, but I think they will probably be enlightening to people who want a process like this for their uh, JavaScript. So, Yehuda, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I should first say I think the idea of having Rails be in the business of doing 
uh, compilation for you is a good thing. I th um, Jose and I put it on the Rails 3.1 roadmap like right after Rails 3.0 as a thing that clearly was like a thing Rails should know how to do. Um, treating your assets as like a throwaway thing that goes in public was not good. So I think conceptually it's good and I'm happy, I'm even happy that Rails did something because it put a beachhead inside of Rails as like we are going to solve this problem. Um, I think that the asset pipeline in Rails is definitely more designed around the use case of like I have a lot of HTML and I want to concatenate my JavaScript. It's not really, it's not really designed around the use case of like I have a giant application which is mostly JavaScript and I would like to do arbitrary things to it. Um, it definitely can do those things. It's for reasons unknown to me very slow, um, surprisingly slow. And again, I just personally think that modeling the process as a build process, basically as rake. Is good. I think that it, it helps like think through the problem, and um, definitely the pain points that got me to care about it were things like performance, things like uh, wanting to build a system that doesn't assume runtime, which was the case in three one. Um, there were some pain points, but I think the bigger the bigger question is like I want to build something that's really optimized for building big JavaScript apps, not happen to have a lot of job, a bunch of JavaScript inside of an HTML. But I, but I think I think it's good. I think it is good that there is a thing which is a compiler inside of Rails. I think that is a good thing. So can I go that on a tangent? Sense. Definitely. Tangent ahead. away. All right. So npm is the Node package manager, right? It's a repository of, of modules for Node, um, and it's awesome. But it seems like people are also kind of starting to use it as a repository for browser code as well. This is bad. Because this before that, the repository for browser code. I think like, it's a good thing. No, it's not. Copy and paste. It's for sure not. So the fact that there's two jQuery. Well, wait, wait, wait. Oh. Let him finish first. Okay. Let him finish first. Then we'll do it. Well, I, I, I guess I'm not. I, I want there to be a repository for browser code, whether it's NPM or, or somewhere else. I don't know yet. I, I think the NPM team wants to move towards some like automated testing things that maybe not won't work as well with uh, just straight up browser code. So maybe that won't work for where they're going in the long run. But but because the model before that is just like download a JavaScript file from the web somewhere and then copy it into a folder somewhere. And that's that's not a very good model for managing dependencies on third party code at all. So I think just the fact that you can in some way use NPM to download specific versions of code and, and update them automatically if you want to or don't if you don't want to. I think that's awesome. And I think if, if that's not the best solution, it's a, something else needs to replace it that offers that same convenience. So, what so are you done starting your fight now? Uh, I don't know it's going to be a fight, but sure. <laughs> so so what I agree with you. I agree with basically everything you said. What I The problem with NPM is that there is jQuery, and some of the jQueries are jQueries designed for a DOM environment in Node. Some of them are for browsers. The, it is actually very important to be able, and I know you could put tags and people could know that browserify means something or browser maybe, but the fact that there's basically this giant jumble of code that runs in quote unquote JavaScript, but there are very different environments is probably not good. I think for, you could take you could take NPM, make a clone of it and put browser stuff in it. That sounds great. But I go to NPM to find things and often I'm like, I have no idea which package I should use. There are too many things mixed up in one place. Okay, so I'd like to talk a little bit about this too. So I, I really like NPM. I think it's good that both browser and node packages are going into NPM um, because it, the more you increase complexity, the less people are willing to make the hurdle um, or the jump over the hurdle, right? So NPM, having browser modules in there, first of all, 
Um, you know, if it's JavaScript, then it's JavaScript. And if you can put it in NPM, it's going to run on the browser. It's going to run on. There's definitely a huge number of modules out there that cater towards um, browser or cater towards uh, Node, but uh, that can be cleaned up. I mean, you can have a conditional uh, require where when you build it for the browser, you include some of the uh, modules, but not all of them. And, and same thing, if you build it for Node, you could require others. And that's what I've done with Pack Manager is I actually um, put in a little snippet just to check to see whether I'm supposed to include these couple of files or not. And I think building a common abstraction, because the browser is going to have file support, it's going to have, I mean, they both already have web request support, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think the better solution here isn't to say, oh, let's have two repositories, but um, let's come up with a, some standardized ways of abstracting those APIs so that they're going to work uniformly in both environments. And one of the things that needs to be standardized is the, the loader, the way you wrap your, your code in modules and then the syntax for loading it, right? Because right now, um, there's the common JS way that Node uses, and then there's the AMD way, which is slightly different. Um, so, so it's yeah. also the like I don't know. Yeah, that, that's something that needs to be standardized. So I, it is also yes, this is true. But I, you know, a lot basically what the the end result of the pack manager approach, the approach of like put it npm, is you're forcing people who make browser packages to write common JS. Then you get people who are like, why can't we have common JS in the browser? You know what? It's not. Maybe I don't want to do that. Like you're like, well, hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. Because there is already a pattern established for writing code that loads with or without a require function. And I'd also like to note that a require function is something you can write in 20 lines with plenty of white space. I mean, it's not like this huge overhead. Not, but not even if you don't want to use it. Not the way people use the require function. So if you go look at any node package, in order to implement a require function, so there's like modular, for instance, which implements the common JS runtime in the browser, it is not 20 lines of code. You can't write a thing that is compatible with node packages in 20 lines of code. It's actually a big project. Uh, but what gets included into the browser can be. So, for example, um, I use the Ender implementation in Pack Manager, and yeah, it could probably be slimmed down by a few lines or whatever. But it's a very, very small snippet of code that implements required. Yes. So, if you have required dot slash foo in Pack Manager, it handles all of that dependency translation. Okay. So, by the time it, it packs it up for the browser, all of those relative paths are resolved, and any um, conflicting names will be resolved so that the file you load into the browser only has a very small snippet of require overhead and then it has a few changes to the code um, where lines are removed or added. So one thing with that is um, it, it, it still doesn't do uh, asynchronous loading, right? I mean, you're, you're blocking until not blocking, I guess. You're waiting on all the code to require. When you type, like, require foo, you can't give it a callback or anything, can you? Because uh, well, that seems like one advantage of, of the require JS style. No, well, it's yeah, actually so, a stupid idea to have people asynchronously loading 50 files. Yeah, that, that's the idea. thing I feel, too. Yeah, so the require JS is, 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 is it looks cool, um, but even require JS, when you go into production, it compiles 
to a single file, as I understand it. I haven't used RequireJS a lot. You don't have to, but basically, if you ever get into an argument with an AMD RequireJS person about this, they'll tell you, oh, it's not an issue. You use a compiler anyway. At which point I say, then why are you doing this whole crazy async thing in development? Just use it yeah, I don't really understand that myself. Oh. I, I agree that I think the, the node synchronous require is, is better than the AMD asynchronous. I, I don't really get the point of that. So I so my main gripe so I build a lot of JavaScript uh, libraries mostly for the browser. My main gripe with the Common JS style is that basically it asks people to treat files and modules as the same thing. So basically, I build, for instance, I build Ember JS or I build jQuery or I build something like that, and I have a bunch of files purely because I want to separate out my code, and so it's not like one giant fifty thousand line thing. But yeah, that's those, what I do. But within those files, I don't want to have to constantly be importing and exporting other dependencies. I want to just be able to have jQuery as a quasi-global for my package itself that I could keep inserting things onto. And the prop, basically what CommonJS wants you to do is they want you, if, I want to, if I'm in Ember and I want to extend Ember.view, I can't just use Ember.view. I have to say uh, var view equals Ember dot, require Ember slash view dot view or something like that. And then in Ember view, I have to export it. When in fact, what is basically happening for most people who are users of my package is they're just gonna download the entire JS file, or all people, actually. I, want, I basically wanna be able to have the same semantics of a single file for many files that are going to end up being compiled into a single file for actual use. And I think the fact that CommonJS asks you to treat every file as a separate module is massive amounts of extra boilerplate that I just don't like doing. Now, it, it does add about an extra line to adds, every file. It adds more than one line. It adds a line okay. per thing that you would like to import and a line per thing you yes. want to export. And you have to constantly yes. think about what things... So the CommonJS people would say, it's great that you have to think about it. And what I would say is, I think it's great that people should be able to import Ember as a global, but I think it's fine if I want to say, Ember is a package, please include... I, you will get all of Ember. You will get everything that's Ember, and for the purposes of my development, I can break up my files into five or 10 or 50 different files and will assume that they're all going to be shipped together. Not being able to do that is extremely frustrating, and that's why I don't use CommonJS or CommonJS style in browser development. So I, I think it's the trade-off. Um, I personally prefer the explicitness. Um, one thing that, and I, I'm not, I love Ruby, okay? I really like Ruby, and I'm going to say a negative thing here, so I don't want to start a war on this, but... Oh my goodness, thing, the war's begun. The one thing that really bothered <laughs> me about Ruby was all the magic that happens behind the scenes. I really am much more of a fan of the, the Python mantra of explicit over implicit. Um, so I think when you do something like use a closure compiler, uh, if, if it's got a way to factor out all those extra lines of require is great. But I think in terms of writing code and understanding where is this global coming from instead of pulling my hair out, it's way better to see that require and know, oh, this is where that variable comes from. It's not just some magic global. So I'm not talking about globals, right? I'm saying that you should be able to have a single global, which you're going to export. So this is the pattern of building big libraries, right? You have a single global, which you're going to export. And instead of having to basically build up that global in a single file, like basically the properties of that global, you spread that over a bunch of different files. So ember.view is in a different place than ember.object, which is in a different place than ember.array. But the fact that ember.array uses ember.object does not necessarily mean that I should have to say var object equals ember.object, uh, require ember slash object.object, right? If you have a sensibly laid out project, it's obvious that ember.object is in ember slash object.js. Right, and that's been pulled into your overall package or your, your big massive JavaScript file 
and uh, you know that it that it can find it right. So and I don't, when it's I also don't even mind requiring. I, what I mind is having to require an export. So what's the difference? I'm I'm still not completely following. So basically, in CommonJS, if I want people to be if I want other parts of my own library to be able to use Ember.object, I have to do like exports.object equals ember.object in my ember.object file and then in another file if I want to use it, if I want to extend it, I have to say var object equals uh, require ember slash object dot capital object, right? What, what, what we oh, okay. internally inside of ember is we say require ember slash object and then the ember.object global the object property on Ember is now available inside that file. The boilerplate of having so, to export and import and use use basically like local variables inside of a closure is actually a lot of a lot of overhead. I, I just want to say the way that I usually design it is so that um, so say you've got uh, Amber and Amber slash assets or yeah uh, all that kind of stuff. I normally just export it in my main module as an object on the main module. So I would do require amber, and then I would access amber.array or amber.whatever um, through amber, and then amber would require the other things. Um, and then if I wanted to do that very modularly, um, then that's the case where you come into the problem you're saying where you've got to do multiple requires because you only want to require part A and part B of amber, but not parts C and D. So I, that's for sure, what you're saying is definitely a good way to do it. And what I would argue is that when you're building a package which is Ember or jQuery, that's always what you want to do. So the boilerplate of having to like make, maintain a module which is exporting another file module. So ba basically global, like not globals, but the idea of like a shared variable that's available to all your files is actually a nice way to structure this, right? Oh yeah, okay, I, yeah. That would be nice if that were implemented. So basically, the way you could imagine what I'm saying working is that you wrap, not only you wrap in the individual files in a closure, but you also wrap all the files concatenated in a closure. On top of that, you say, inside of that closure, you say var ember equals empty hash, right? And now all the other files yeah. inside have access to that. And then you export just Yeah, like and I, I don't think there's currently a build system that does it that elegantly. So, but that, that's what I want, right? So we, we have something that basically works like that, and that's basically what I want. And the fact that the CommonJS people and the AMD people are like, no, it's bad. Like, you should treat your individual files inside your project as though they were external things that people were requiring really bugs me. I don't think that those are the same. I think that it, the 15 files that make up EmberJS are different than Ember.js to some other project or some other file to some other project. Does that make sense? So how, how do you, I guess, how do you enforce that so, so it doesn't get abused, though? Because I think the thing with, with the way CommonJS does it where you have to explicitly require things is it's more boilerplate, but um, the upside is it, it like, I mean, like you already said, you have to be really explicit about things, whereas... It sounds like the the way you're talking about doing it with Ember, um, you can be really disciplined and, and good about it, but you could also do horrible things with it as well. So I would argue that there's a missing... Is that there's a missing accurate? I, I understand what you're saying, and I would argue that the problem is that there's a missing concept, which is package, right? So right now, there's only one level of granularity, which is individual files. If you want to break up things into multiple files mm -hmm. purely for organization, you now have to treat all those files as though they export and import an API. You don't always want that. Sometimes you want them to mm -hmm. just, you want to break up a file because the file is getting too big. You would like to break it up into two files. And CommonJS basically now makes you think about how those files are exporting and importing APIs, which is sometimes wrong. What I'm saying is that there should be a concept of package, which is all the files inside of this package have access to some shared variables that you could define somewhere. And 
obviously that you would have to export those if other packages wanted them, but you wouldn't treat every single file as though it was its own package, which is essentially what CommonJS and Node expect you to do now. So uh, that sounds really good. Who's, who's going to make that? Because <laughs> that, that doesn't exist right now, right? You're, you're basically, you're, so, you're doing that through your own discipline, but it, it doesn't happen so the reason why automatically. No, the reason right? why no one's going to make it is that everyone's so over the moon about NPM that they're just going to keep using NPM, and NPM tells you to use CommonJS, and that's the end. So I don't, I don't use NPM for this reason, and I have a system that we use. Um, the answer, actually, is we will... We like people use my Ruby thing and it does the right thing, but because I'm not really interested in writing, I don't like JavaScript as a scripting language. Probably most of the JavaScript community will never use anything I built. So what was right. that last part you said you don't like using? I don't. What is a scripting language? I don't think JavaScript is a good scripting language. I think JavaScript is a good asynchronous server language and good asynchronous UI language. But I think that I think the fact that in Node it's like, well, we have these synchronous APIs, but if you use them, you're being a bad person. Uh, I think that that's bad. I think it makes it unpleasant so to write. So there's, there's a paradigm that um, if possible, when your module loads, it should use synchronous APIs. So that when the require is done, because that's at load time, that's not, not something that's recurring over and over and over again during your server's process. So at require time, anything you need to do synchronously is is okay. Now, Douglas Crockford might argue with that. I heard him say some remarks about it on one of his tech talks, but but generally in the Node community, that's acceptable. What's not acceptable is that in a server process, you would use synchronous calls. Right. Now, I've implemented I've implemented OS.walk from, from Python, more or less, in, in the Node-style way, and I can tell you it is definitely less efficient than the way Python does it, because the overhead of the callbacks actually adds to the memory, the CPU. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Basically my feel like I I'm I write a lot of Ruby and I write a lot of JavaScript. These days I write a lot more JavaScript than I write Ruby. And for writing things that are basically package managers, compilers, please read this file and do a regex against it and then take this part and do this thing to it. I just I don't like JavaScript for that. I don't think JavaScript is, is a is the best programming language for that. And I think that so people always say like use the best tool for the job. And they're usually telling people to use Node instead of Ruby. And I guess I am turning that on its head. If you're, writing, if you're writing a thing that is a scripting type thing, I think the best tool for the job is a scripting language. And JavaScript isn't one. JavaScript is basically a language that evolved as an asynchronous programming environment. It's not a scripting language. Use the best tool for the job as long as the tool is the tool I think is the best tool for the job. Well, so I just, just to be clear, like I, I think JavaScript is the right tool for the browser. I think if someone, if someone made Ruby work in the browser right now, I would probably not use it because it's, JavaScript has a much more evolved sensibility around doing asynchronous things well. Maybe like in five years, Ruby, after Ruby was shipped, it would be good at it. But right now it's not, not even close. And I just... I, I think people want to use JavaScript for scripting things because they it feels like, oh, I'm writing a JavaScript client-side library, I should really use JavaScript on the for the scripting part. And I just it doesn't I don't it doesn't feel good. I don't enjoy writing JavaScript on the for that type of thing. I, I would say that I write JavaScript on the server side for well, you know, for scripting type things because it's fun for me. Um, not necessarily because I feel like it's the most efficient. I, I definitely think that um, for a lot of scripting tasks, Ruby and Python have a real advantage um, for that kind of very procedural, I'm going to open a file, I'm going to close a file, um, you know, where, where basically 
to 99% of what you're doing in that script is actually only going to happen synchronously, chronologically, and if you're using callbacks in it, it's really just for fun. Um, you're not getting any gain out of it and that kind of procedure. Yeah, and so I agree. It's just not very... for me. So again, as a person who writes a ton of code in several different languages, I just I don't like JavaScript for that. And I th- you, you hit the nail on the head, right? JavaScript... The whole, the whole Node community and the JavaScript live language is very focused around the callback sensibility. And if, you, if you're doing something that is essentially synchronous, it's like do steps 1 through 50, it's, it just feels like you're doing extra work. Or you're having to think yeah, about it, like I'm, doing, I'm being a bad person now to get something done. And, and I agree. I, I don't think that, that Node.js is the best tool for the job when it comes to that. Although they're, you know, That's there's Rhino. But, so, so, so that's more of a community problem than an actual code problem, though, right? Because I, I mean, I agree. I, I feel I, I feel weird doing like a little just scripting thing in, in JavaScript in Node because it it doesn't really fit for that. But then it, it seems like the Node community really they like Node the best out of everything or everything. So it totally. So I mean, is there anything you can do about that? It totally is a community thing, and, but I think there's like an important aspect. But but how do you solve that? I guess. So I mean, you. Can, I just I, what I, I I guess what I'm reacting against is the argument that Node people make that if you are working on a client side JavaScript thing and you are not using Node for parts of it that are scripting related, you are doing something wrong. There's definitely that argument that is made by a lot of people. And I write a lot. I write more JavaScript than Ruby. But when I come, when it comes time for me to write a rake, uh, a, you know, I I use rake, not cake, right? I I think rake is actually just it's better. It's more mature. There's yeah. more understanding of how to use it than whatever Node solution happens to exist. And I would just prefer to I would prefer to use the solutions that already work instead of trying to fight with and I don't so I don't want to say like immature and then people are like Yehuda saying node is immature what I'm saying is that node is not really it's not a community that is has like a decade of experience doing or like even five years of experience doing scripting stuff node is much better at being an HTML, right. but it's not much better yeah. at being a I, great I think the primary advantage to node in in some of those types of tasks would be um, convenience if you want to learn one language and learn it really well, learn its module system well. Because obviously, I mean, programming is not any more difficult or easy in, in really any of the high-level languages. I mean, you take Ruby, you take Python, you take Node, you take uh, maybe Lua or you know, a, a dozen of others. And if you can program in one, you can program in all of them. But what, what I feel really it comes down to is where you're spending your time in understanding the community, understanding the documentation, understanding the module systems. Yeah, yeah I, I think if someone really yeah. only wants to use, learn one language, then obviously if they already know JavaScript, Node is good. But I don't really want those people working on my package manager, right? I would rather have people who are... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think anybody, who, anybody who's going to be good at writing a package manager knows more than one language already. and. Um, I think if the package manager has like important requirements around asynchronous serving, maybe that's the case. Fine, but if if not, I don't. I, and I don't, to be clear, I don't begrudge anybody writing something in in Node at all. I think if you want to do that, that's fine. I don't think you're doing something wrong. But I think it's bad to tell people who are writing things in other languages like, hey, you're not writing it in Node. Clearly, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, you're not a true JavaScripter. <sighs> Honest, somebody. So there was a maybe I complained about this last week, but I. There was a post where someone said, like, I don't trust Katz's recent foray into JavaScript. I'm like, bro, I've been doing JavaScript for five years. I did more job- JavaScript <laughs> than Ruby. I don't know what's going on. But, yeah, there's definitely that sensibility of, like, 
of like JavaScript community <laughs> solidarity for not doing something in JavaScript that you and honestly that's the case in every community. Well, right? But I'm just not I never was part of that in Ruby and I'm not part of it in JavaScript. And that's even a little bit weird with JavaScript because there are almost two communities, right? There's the node people and then there's the browser people. Like I don't know. JavaScript has an interesting community. And, it, um, and I don't yeah. mean interesting that it's that. I mean interesting is it's it's very different from other programming language communities. Yeah, and it, it ties back to that whole discussion again whether or not browser packages really belong in NPM or whether they'd be better off somewhere else. And you know, I, I think it really does come down to how you perceive the community or the two communities if if it's that way. And and what makes the most sense to the most people. So anyway, we, we need to get into the picks. Sure. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't begrudge people putting packages in Node, just like I don't begrudge people writing package managers in Node, but I definitely, I would not do it that way. All right. And I want to throw one thing in there, if I can, back to this, uh, our topic discussion. Um, I do want to just throw out there that having part of your process be linting your code and making sure that that is in strict mode and if you can't get it done in strict mode, you're probably doing it wrong, unless you happen to be using Octal on the file system and you're uh, the maintainer of NPM. <laughs> oh, so JS Lit, that's a whole, whole nother discussion, I think. Yeah, but I just, I, I, I just want to throw that out there that should be part of the process is linting it and making sure it's in strict mode. Yeah, I don't like sacrificing yeah. bytes to Crockford by doing triple equals null or triple equals undefined, but that's about it. I think double equals null is actually okay, but that's the only case that I know of where it's like clearly wrong, the, the Crockford way. Yeah, I, th I think this is something we'll have to go into another time because there, there's a whole discussion around this. And a lot of people aren't happy with lint. But yeah, yeah, we, we definitely should. All right, well, let's get into the picks. I, I, I know that we're up against a, a kind of a hard deadline to end, so I want to make sure we end in time. Um, Jameson, do you have a, a pick or picks for us? Yeah, uh, I have, so maybe I have two. We'll see how the first one goes. So there's, um, there's a, a fan fiction written by this famous artificial intelligence researcher. I think it's... Eliezer Udowski, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it's a Harry Potter fan fiction, and it's called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, and it sounds just like insane when I talk about it. Like it's it's really well written. This guy's a fantastic writer, and if you have read the Harry Potter books and you are at all into like um, science or, or like uh, I don't know, like skepticism or, or intellectualism, or, no, I don't know. Um, it, it's like a brilliant deconstruction of Harry Potter, but it's also an awesome story. Like. Uh, they, they just change the circumstances of his birth and then change his personality a lot. And, and they do a really good job of making a believable world with this different Harry Potter. But it still kind of like gives you little nudges every so often if you read the first ones. So I don't know. I, I always do a really bad job of describing it. But it's fantastic. So it's, it's I'll post a link in the show notes. But it's Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. And um, my other pick is kind of hypocritical because I don't do it enough. But it's just exercise. Um, like it's the world's tradition in January to start some new habit that's good for you. And I started exercising and I felt really great. I haven't been very good uh, recently, but it makes a huge difference if you exercise. Healthier, more awake, more energy. I don't know. Yeah, we could definitely we could definitely do it with a tougher Jameson. <laughs> you, you can be our bouncer if somebody tries to crash the call, right? <laughs> Fold my massive arms. No, I, I've always been like a 98-pound weakling, so I mean, I'm not going to get buff or anything, but I just feel better when I exercise. There you go. Bulk up. Make it 102. Yeah. <laughs> All right. AJ, what are your picks? 
so one, interestingly enough, is Living Social. Um, so I, I really like Living Social. I like the the daily deals. What I like most about it is that it can find deals in Provo and in Orem, which is where I frequent the most in Utah. Whereas a lot of the other deal sites, um, they're just for like Salt Lake, which is an hour and a half away, you know, <laughs> depending on the day. <laughs> Um, and the time. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of disappointed with Google offers that they're like trying to swoop in there and knock out the little guys. But Living Social, definitely a plus. Um, I'm also going to toot my own horn. I'm really enjoying the DropShare uh, site that I wrote because I'm finding more and more that I just want to send a file from the command line. And so I type my little DropShare in the name of the file and up it goes. And I copy and paste the link into the email before it's even done uploading. And that makes me happy. Yeah. Uh, isn't Jameson helping you with that one? Yeah. He's actually... Yeah. I, I, I was taking a little too much credit there. He's done a very significant portion of that, probably more than I have. Yeah, I know you were asking for help on the Utah JS list. Did you get anyone else to help you, or is it just the two of you? Uh, it's just been the two of us. We haven't really had time to work on it much or promote it much since the um, since December. All right. Yehuda, what are your picks? So, uh, I have two. Oh, there you uh, are. So first of all, book, uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Um, it, one of the things that blew my mind about it was he debunked or, or attempted to debunk the myth of barter as the source of money, which I think is like a pretty ingrained mythos in American culture, and um, seeing it be taken apart academically is very interesting, and uh, that's a tease for the rest of the book that has other interesting things. Um, and the second one is, uh, there's a new app called Flint, which is a alternative to propane for campfire. Um, it's definitely still early days, there's features that it needs, but um, I'm always happy when somebody builds an alternative to a thing that was kind of just entrenched. So propane is basically like the thing you use, but it really hadn't gotten any features in a long time, and it's just like sitting there. So someone mixing it up is good, um, and I've, I've been using it. It's available on the Mac App Store. So I just want to say, uh, those are the two hardest words to Google for. Like, I, I saw Aaron Patterson talking about them on Twitter, like, Flint, what is this? And yeah, nothing. I, I could not. not helpful. Yeah, my my skills were not enough. Yeah, it's going to give you flint and steel. Cool. Um, So my picks this week, um, one thing that I use a lot in on my machine that uh, and it it's not that complicated, but it's just really handy. It's called Mailplane. Um, And this was something that it was actually uh, picked on Ruby Rogues by James Edward Gray. But basically what it is, is it's just kind of a wrapper for um what is it google mail so i have google apps so that's what i'm using it for and uh you know it just gives you the the alerts so it tells me right now i have 16 emails uh which isn't unheard of for me and uh you know i wake up every morning to like 50 or 60 emails that i have to grind through um but it it gives me that it you know it gives me the interface to uh to google mail and, uh, you know, it's just a really convenient thing. It's almost like Fluid app, if you've used Fluid, um, which is, I, I use that to wrap some other websites. But, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's really handy and a really nice way to go. Um, and it uses the APIs in a good way. So my other pick is uh, something that I, I actually bought. And this ties in with uh, Jameson's pick of exercise because um, my wife and I, we just signed up for the local uh, community rec, rec, rec center. And um, when we signed up for that, we also signed up for a weight loss con- contest. And um, so I've been going to the gym and swimming. And uh, the one problem I have with swimming is that I can't listen to anything while I'm swimming. And so I actually went and got a Speedo Aquabeat, which is a, it's a MP3 player that you can take in the water with you. I'm really glad you, you didn't just leave it at a, at a Speedo. Like, 
speedo with a built-in speaker or something. That oh, there you go. Image Chuck. <laughs> yeah, you're swimming and everyone else in the pool can hear the doop, 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 doop. <laughs> yeah, because it's, 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 you know, coming off your hip or whatever. But, uh... <laughs> Makes your butt cheek jiggle because it's so loud. Yeah, there you go. Um... Yeah, I'll, I'll admit to actually owning a Speedo, but I, I wear it under my swim trunks. Anyway, um, I, I was on the swim team in high school, and uh, anyway, so it's it's super nice, and, and I can I can load it up with with uh, MP3s and stuff, and then, you know, just, just play the music or play the podcast or whatever and swim. One problem I did have with it was keeping it uh, stuck in my ears, because water flowing past it has a tendency to pull them out, and so I actually had to get a swim cap. And uh, if you if you know me at all, you know that my uh, general hairstyle is none. Like I just buzz it off. So um, yeah, the swim cap is purely for my musical enjoyment. Anyway, so so those are my picks. And uh, I just want to let let folks know if you're listening to this, uh, we are in iTunes. Um, I have my virtual assistant working on getting this into things like uh, Stitcher and a few of the other podcast directories, so that you know you can find it wherever you want it. Um, and there should be subscribe links up for both iTunes and for RSS. So if you're doing this on your Android phone, you should be able to get it there too. And, uh, you know, finally, um, you know, we are working on getting this out. It really helps if you leave us a review, especially where we're, um, we're kind of new. It, it helps bring us to the top of the list in iTunes. So leave us a review in iTunes and let us know what you think. And, uh, you know, you can always let us know what you think on Twitter as well. Um, the Twitter account for this podcast is at JS Jabber. And, uh, you know, I watch that and am interested in what you have to say. So, uh, with that, we'll wrap this up and thanks for listening.